Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. We're going to be in Titus again. And so if you have a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Titus. And specifically, we are going to be in Titus chapter 3 today. Titus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks there in front of you. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, we are going to be on page 998 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks. I don't know if it's, if you're not using one of those Bibles, you've got your own Bible, I don't know what page number it is in your Bible, okay? I can't look them all up. <laughs> okay, 1201 for some of you. You can just call out random numbers based on the various translations and we'll be here for the next 20 minutes. Titus chapter 3 is where we are going to be spending some time today. At the beginning of the summer, Amazon released a a documentary series called Shiny Happy People. Anybody seen Shiny Happy People? Okay, we've got a a bunch of you actually that have seen Shiny Happy People. This uh, opened up and debuted as maybe the, uh, the biggest documentary series that Amazon has ever released. Uh, huge numbers of people watching it, and one of the reasons there were huge numbers of people watching it is because it followed a family called the Duggars, who were uh, part of that reality show on TLC called 19 Kids and Counting. Uh, I had it in my mind that this show uh, ended its run just a couple of years ago until I looked it up. It's like everything for me. I thought like Indiana Jones probably came out like five years ago. (laughs) Oh, that's like 40 years ago. Uh, So there are probably some of you here who don't even know who the Duggars are because eight years ago might as well be ancient history. But 19 kids and counting followed a family that had 19 kids and counting. I think it stopped at 19. But it followed this family named the Duggars for almost 10 years. It was a flagship show for TLC. It was their biggest moneymaker. It was actually the show that launched TLC from being one of those networks that happens to be in your cable subscription to one of those networks that was a main piece of your cable subscription. It followed the Duggars for one reason, because they had a really large family of 19 kids. It also followed them because the Duggars projected this image of the perfect family. All of their kids were clean cut. They almost always did everything that they were supposed to do. They almost always had a smile on their faces. They were hardworking, they were talented, and amidst the chaos of 19 children, No one ever lost their temper or even said one swear word, which makes me think this had to be scripted. (laughs) There were no avenues of worldliness whatsoever in the Duggars' home as they even had an episode where they had a Disney burning, where they burned anything in their house that had Disney associated with it or attached to it. And 
One of the things that, one of the, the, the images that the Duggars portrayed is that look at the kind of Christian family we have. We're not perfect, but man, are we close. And you can too. But as time went on, cracks in the foundation started to show. There was a pretty significant cover-up of sexual abuse. There, they have uh, an oldest son who is now in prison. There was greed involved. There was power, the need for control. And as, it, as some of these children have grown up, they have started leaving this so-called perfect environment. The Duggars followed the teachings of the now-disgraced Bill Gothard, who claimed to provide a blueprint for every facet of life. And he had these institute and basic life principles seminars that happened not only all across the United States, but all across the world. There were centers for this and research. They were involved in making homeschool curriculum. They were doing all sorts of things. And the interesting thing about Bill Gothard is that he had every answer to marriage and parenting that anyone could possibly have. And the reason he had all the answers to marriage and parenting is because he was neither married nor a parent. (laughs) It is super easy to have all the answers when you ain't doing it. But these life seminars that, that people would go to uh, proclaim to arm you with an answer for, for every single problem in life. You could do it all. But thousands upon thousands in the movement, and there's estimated that some two million people over the course of maybe a decade or two went through these seminars. Thousands upon thousands have come out of that movement weighed down by guilt and fear and shame by the constant need to perform. After all, God's cameras were rolling. And one of the foundational teachings of Gothard was that that you experience God's blessing in the family and in work and in society as long as you were doing the right things in the right way. And Gothard was able to get a whole bunch of people looking great so that a, a worldwide television audience could watch it on TV and say, wow. At the end of the day, though, one of the big problems with Gothard's God was that he was not good. God does desire, even say command, godliness from us as Christians. But the God of the Duggars was a distortion, always Demanding, And as the rules continued to pile on, the chains continued to weigh them down. You see, the difference between Gothard's version of God and the God of the Bible is that the God that we see in scriptures, whether we perceive him to be this way or not, is in every way good. 
And though he calls us to live lives of godliness, that obligation is captured well in the lines of a hymn that we were singing together just this morning, and which we sang a couple of weeks ago as well. The hymn is one that's been around for a long time. It's called, Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing thy grace. And there's a line in the song that goes this way, some lines in the song that go this way. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Now there's something very interesting that the author of this hymn does. He, he uses the imagery of being bound, the imagery of being constrained. He uses the imagery of a fetter. And if you're not familiar with that word, a fetter is kind of like a, a manacle. It's a chain that would often be used to bind the hands or more often the feet of prisoners. So, so your feet are, are fettered. You're bound in chains. And he takes that imagery and talks about the fact that we have received so much grace that that grace, in a sense, constrains us like a fetter. And we could hear that and think, okay, so the rest of our lives, every time we think about doing something wrong, we should see God over our shoulder and say, look at all I've done for you, man. Really? You're going to go and do that? So I guess it was just for nothing. And we could be weighed down by guilt and shame again. But no, what the hymn writer actually says is, Oh to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. The fetter... The chains which bind our wandering hearts to God. And if you're, you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you know, and can probably sing well with the song, that our hearts are prone to wander, right? That's the, that's the line, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, and I do feel it. And you probably feel it too. These hearts are prone to wander But the fetter which binds our wandering hearts to God is not sheer terror of his power, not a fear that if I step out of line for a moment, everything in my life is going to go haywire. No, the the thing that's going to bind our wandering hearts to God is a unshakable confidence in his goodness. Now, maybe you don't believe. Because that can't be right, right? I've not heard that before. That sounds like that kind of gospel that people preach where you can just go off and do whatever you want. Now. But I think it's a very biblical concept. And I think our text today is going to show us how biblical that concept is. We're here in what we refer to as the book of Titus. And I've reminded you on a few occasions that the book of Titus is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the foundational leaders of the the Christian church in the first century, 
to a man that he had mentored, his name was Titus. And Titus had been left on the island of Crete, which is an island off the coast of Greece, so that he could set some things in order in these new Christian communities. And one of the things that Paul, one of the responsibilities that Paul gives to Titus is to urge these new believers to devote themselves to good works. What we're calling in this series the good life. They are to devote themselves to the good life. But he is very clear from the opening verse that our pursuit of good works is a response to the work of the gospel that we have believed and that is working itself out in our hearts. So we're studying this book, this letter together, and I'll remind you every few weeks, we're studying it thematically rather than sequentially or chronologically, meaning we're organizing the various pieces of this uh, book and looking at it that way rather than just starting in verse 1 and going all the way to the end. But don't worry, for those of you who want to cover every verse, we will read and preach on every word, verse. You're just going to be covered. It's just not going to be in order. But we're going through it that way, and we're, the question that we're asking right now is, okay, if this book is calling us to the good life, what are the resources or motivations, you might say, that, that fuel us in the good life as we pursue this life of devotion to good works that God is calling us to in Christ? In the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the, that the gospel... And this, uh, from the book of Titus, has two resources that fuel or motivate our pursuit of good works. The first one is the grace of God. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about that. But this morning, I'd like us to talk about a second motivating aspect of the gospel, which, of course, I've already highlighted, and that is God's goodness. What is going to fuel your heart with all of its prone to wanderness, to keep going, to pursue godliness when there's a cost involved, to pursue godliness when the scripture and Jesus calls you to this and your heart is calling you another direction. What's going to call you to get back up on your feet when you've fallen? And maybe not just when you've fallen, but when you've fallen again and again and again. What are, what's going to fuel you to keep going? Today we're going to look at Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. And in Titus 3, verses 3 to 8, you can follow along with us if you want. The Word of God says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. 
And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now notice again in verse 8, the Bible says that it's important that those who have believed in God must be careful to devote themselves to good works. Okay, so that the, the results that we're wanting, or one of the results that we're wanting in verse 8, with the language of so that, is so that we might be devoted to good works. But what drives that devotion? Verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God. God's goodness leads to our devotion to good works. And so the truth that I want us to just take a little bit of time this morning to explore that you might want to write down is this. The good news of God's goodness compels us to live the good life. The good news of God's goodness compels, drives, motivates, draws, calls us to live the good life. And I want to explore that truth this morning by asking this question. How does God's goodness fuel our pursuit of the good life? How does a, a daily soaking in, living in the reality, the truth of God's goodness fuel a life that's devoted to uh, uh, good works? And I want to answer that from our text in two ways. Number one, God's goodness compels us to live the good life because in the first place, God is good to people who don't deserve it. God is good to people who don't deserve it. What what kinds of people does God show his goodness to? Well, there are versions of Christianity that would tell you that God shows his goodness to people who are doing good stuff. But the Bible gives a very different answer about the kinds of people that God shows his goodness to. Look again at verse 3. The Bible says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Do those sound like people that you would choose to spend some time with? You see, the truth of the matter is, God is good to bad people. And that is very good news for us. He shows his goodness to people who are slaves to a variety of passions and pleasures, whose whose guiding principle in life is, does this feel good for me? And when you have a whole bunch of people whose guiding principle is, does this feel right for me? You have a recipe for chaos because everyone is doing right in their own eyes. 
He shows his goodness to people not who are the most obedient, but to people who are disobedient. He shows his goodness to people who are characterized by arguing, by not getting along, hating each other, and being hated by each other. And I want you to notice the way Paul words this to Titus. What he does not say to Titus is, he does not read this list of people and say, Titus, let me, let me get you to focus in and just have a reality check on the people you're going to be ministering to. These, these Cretans, these people living on the Isle of Crete, they're a bunch of pagans, and their lives are characterized by all of these things, and so you're going to have a rough go of it. No, he starts out this description by including himself and Titus among people who are like that. He says, hey, Titus, we ourselves, not just these Cretans, we ourselves were like this. And this is coming from the Apostle Paul who said, if you want to measure like resume of good works, I will put my resume up against anyone else's. I've done all this stuff from the time I was at a young age. I've been a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I've kept the law, and all of that was true, but all of this was true as well. And whether Paul's life was characterized outwardly by all of these things, they were true in the heart. And I bet the same is true for us as well. We may not always be characterized outwardly by these characteristics, but these things come standard in all human beings. And so he says, we ourselves were all of these things. But if you were with us last week, you might remember from chapter 2 and verse 14 that the Bible told us that Jesus gave himself on the cross to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And we talked about the fact that Paul was reaching back into the Old Testament and bringing an Old Testament concept into the New Testament and he was basically saying, God takes people like that and makes us his prized possession. Now you may have heard of the advice before that you need to find your people. And what do we say when, when we give that advice? You need to find your people. Now you need to find the people who you connect with Find the people that will give you deep friendships, people that will hold you accountable, people that get the same jokes that you do, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that advice, okay? We, we have relationships with all kinds of people, but it can be helpful to find your people. And as you're here in our church, you end up connecting in deeper ways with your people. But think about God. Finding his people. Do you think people who are hated by others and hating one another sound like God's kind of people? Yeah, those are the kinds of people he finds. And those are the kinds of people he shows his goodness to. People who are full of malice and anger and disobedience and people who are slaves to various kinds of passions and pleasures, those are God's kind of people. He goes out and he finds those kinds of people 
and he chooses to show his goodness to those kinds of people. Because God is the kind of God who is good to people who don't deserve it. That is really good news. That's the goodness that's like a feather that binds our wandering hearts to him. And that, I will tell you, is a chain I don't mind wearing. It's a chain where you don't feel the weight at all. There's a second reason that God's goodness compels us to live the good life. Number one, because God is good to people who don't deserve it. And number two, because God is good to people who haven't earned it. If you're there in Titus 3, look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So all through this book, you may inescapably notice in every chapter and in a variety of ways, this book calls us to live a life that is characterized by devoted to good works. You cannot escape that when you read this. But you need to make sure, as you understand that God calls us to live a life of good works, you need to make sure that you understand verse 5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Which means that while God calls us to live a life of righteous works, those good works are the result of his saving actions on our part, not the cause. They are the result, not the cause. We constantly get the Bible wrong when we attribute the result to the cause. The reason any of us are able with any degree of success to pursue the word works that God determined beforehand that we should walk in is because he has already done the work of saving us totally apart from works and totally based on his mercy. Or to put it another way, our good works are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. We have been saved by works, but not ours. We have been saved by the good, the goodness and the works of God on our behalf. He saves us according to his mercy, by grace alone, through faith alone, on on the work of Christ alone. The goodness and kindness of our God and Savior has appeared, our text tells us, and it has appeared no more savingly or more beautifully in the person and work of Jesus Christ who gives himself as an offering, as a sacrifice on the cross, offers his work on our behalf who could do no works that would bring us to the Father. 
And God's goodness in our text is experienced in three benefits of salvation, which you have not done a single thing to earn. And we could do whole sermons about these three things, but rather than than viewing each of these things and examining each of these things in detail, I'd rather give you the cumulative effect of these gifts and salvation that have come to you, though you have not done a single thing to earn them. Okay, so there are three gifts of salvation, one for us by Christ, that we have not done a thing to earn. Number one, gifts of the Spirit. Now, when I refer to the gifts of the Spirit, I'm not referring to spiritual gifts, although those are things that are given to us through the work of Christ. But what I'm talking about here is what the Bible mentions as the work of the Spirit on our behalf. The Old Testament promise in the New Covenant that one of the benefits of the New Covenant is that God's Spirit would be poured out without measure on every single person without distinction who comes in faith to Christ. It is the imagery of abundance. The imagery of the Spirit just being poured into a cup that is, that is overflowing and overflowing and overflowing. Every single person from the least to the greatest, uh, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all have been given to drink of that same spirit. When the spirit is poured out on us richly, we see in our text that the spirit washes us. He's poured out on us and washes us so that we are both regenerated and renewed. When a person comes to faith in Christ, when a person trusts in the work of Christ, the Spirit does a work within them, giving them a new heart. The Bible talks about it in terms of taking this old heart of stone that is, that is, that is hell-bent on the wrong things, and gives us a a heart of flesh, a heart uh, that's alive, a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. Not a heart that's yet been fully perfected, but a heart that wants to walk in in God's ways, a heart that wants to live the good life, a heart that wants to be devoted to good works. And then we experience the work of the Spirit in this daily renewing, this daily giving us of spiritual life that enables us to keep going when our hearts are prone to wander. So one of the gifts of salvation that you have done absolutely nothing to earn is the gift of the Spirit who has been poured out on you without measure and whose ministry you experience in a daily renewal on a daily basis every single day of your Christian life. There's a second benefit of God's goodness in salvation. And that is justification by grace. Justification by grace. Justification is one of those words that we run across when we're, when we're reading the Bible and we're like, what does that mean again? I got a vague idea. It has something to do with righteousness. And so if you need a refresher, justification is a declarative act by God whereby he counts or considers us righteous. It is, it is, a, it is to use a word that you might run across, God, 
imputing to us the righteousness of Christ, ascribing to our account, accounting to us Christ's righteousness. God requires righteousness of us for fellowship with him. And yet, as you can attest in your own experience, we fall woefully short of being righteous, don't we? I mean, maybe you're better than I am. But still, for us to to attain to the kind of righteousness, the perfect holiness in word and deed and thought and motivation, that's a tall order. It's one that none of us can fulfill because the Bible tells us that we are actually born in our trespasses and sins. Born with the guilt of our first father, Adam. But in the gospel, there is, in the words of Luther, this wonderful exchange whereby God gives us the righteousness of Christ in exchange for our unrighteousness. So that we stand in Christ perfectly righteous before him. We are justified, and we are justified by grace and grace alone. One of the benefits of salvation that you have right now, if you were to pull out your membership package and look at the fine print, is that even though you are not perfectly righteous in your seat right now, you are justified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. A third gift of your salvation is the inheritance of eternal life. Verse 7 tells us that those who have been justified by grace become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's what that's saying to you. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you have received the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit, if you have been justified by Christ through his grace, you have got a bright future. You are never going to get written out of the will. You are never going to do anything that could get you written out of the will. You are an heir. You have a future that is full of hope. You know, there are scholarships in Florida. I don't know if they, they do these in other states, but there are scholarships in Florida called Bright Futures. And if you get, if you get the right grades, you can qualify for different levels of these Bright Futures scholarships. And Bright Futures bright future scholarships are great, but they don't guarantee anything, do they? Because you may not get into the school that you want, and you may not be able to learn the thing that you want, and you may not get the job that you want, and your life may be filled with a whole bunch of difficulties that you did not anticipate because some tuition cannot alone guarantee you a bright future. But if you know Christ, the future for you is so bright because you are an heir. God has so many good things planned for you that I have not seen nor ear heard. And not only does he have all these things planned for you, but you've got an eternity to enjoy it. Have you ever felt the pinch of having something good happening and knowing that it's going to be over? 
And so you're trying to squeeze every last bit out of that vacation or that experience or that thing because you know that it has to end. Well, one day there's going to come a time where you're never going to have to look at the clock again because there's never going to be an end. You can enjoy it and keep on enjoying it and then keep on enjoying it more. And for all these benefits, you and I have not done one solitary thing together. Not one thing. You and I have every bit of the blessings of God's loving kindness because he's good. So, how might we make these truths actionable? Let me give you a suggestion. And then you're going to have an opportunity as we share the Lord's Supper together to make them actionable as you come to the table. But let me suggest a way that you could make these truths actionable, that you could put them to use. To ask the question another, another way, how might you, in your daily life, let God's goodness be that fetter, that chain with no weight, that binds your heart that constantly wants to run off? How could God's goodness be a fetter that binds your wandering heart to him? Here's one way. Does your heart ever tell you, that little voice in you say, you are so bad? Anybody have? I'm not actually asking you to raise your hand. Uh, you can if you want. So I do. Uh, I absolutely have that voice that will speak into my heart and say, you are so bad. Like, I can't believe how bad you are. What do you think of other people knew how bad you were? What would they think of you? Whenever your heart says, I am too bad, you need to remember this. That's okay. God is good to people who don't deserve it. God is constantly doing good things for bad people. Not I am often a bad person, which makes me eminently qualified for God's goodness. You see, your heart will tell you the other thing. You're, you, you are qualified to receive God's goodness when everything is perfect. But God is good to people who don't deserve it. Does your heart ever tell you that some variation of this? You're not living up to your calling as a Christian. How many times is it going to take? Why isn't your maturity where it should be? 
When your heart says you're not living up to your calling as a Christian, you need to remember that God is good to people who haven't earned it. And we are sometimes afraid that if we have that kind of self-talk with ourselves, then that is going to let us off the hook. Because what I really need when I'm feeling that is a big kick in the pants. A little bit of shame, shame, guilt, fear, cocktail, and that'll get me straight again. So if I think about God's goodness, then I'm going to not do the things that I should. And the Bible says that's a lie from Satan himself to keep you from pursuing the good works. It's when we're down that we most need to remember God's goodness. Because it's God's goodness that's going to pick us up. It's God's goodness that's going to compel us in gratitude forward. It is an unshakable confidence in God's goodness that will bind you to the loving kindness of God's heart. So let's put it into action right now at the table.